Welcome to the Trinity Radio Podcast. This podcast has a video component found at youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter. This means you might miss some visual aspects of the show, but it shouldn't have a serious negative effect. We'd love it if you'd run over to the YouTube channel real quick and subscribe. And if you enjoy this content, do us a favor. Take a moment to give us a five-star review on iTunes and mention a couple of things you like about the podcast. If you really appreciate the show, you can help make it better and get extra content for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash trinity radio. Enjoy the show. Welcome to a rare evening edition of Trinity Radio. And I'm so excited to be here with you all today on the channel that loves atheists. And if you're someone who clicked on this video because you are a listener of Morgue, the individual we'll be responding to today, welcome. And we hope that you and Morgue, if you see this, we hope that everyone understands that when we respond to people on this channel, we're responding to ideas. It's not about the individual. We're not doing this because we want to upset anyone or be mean. Um, we, we, uh, we think it's fine to respond to ideas, and we think some of the greatest travesties that have taken place in the history of mankind have taken place because people were afraid to respond to ideas. Now, this is an issue that's going to have to do with some areas of theology that I'm aware of and have studied at uh, probably a lot more than a lot of people, but yet I know my limitations. Um, maybe sometimes I violate that, but that's not my goal. I, I think I know my limitations. And so when I don't know how to respond well to something in a succinct way, I get my friends. And the great thing about it is I am the president of a Bible college and seminary, by the way, Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, trinitysem.edu, trinitysem.edu. Even if you don't intend to be a professional minister or anything like that, you can learn from wherever you're at. It's 100% online. You can learn um, at home in your pajamas, and we'll be happy with that. And everyone that you're going to see on this video today, <laughs> with the exception of Morg, um, are affiliated with Trinity in some way or other. So I'll just go ahead and introduce some of these incredible people that I happen to know who are going to be able to help me out here. On my on on the screen on the left, you'll see Chris Date. You've seen Chris Date quite a bit recently. Well, we could have seen him more, but you've seen him some. He uh, debated Steve Gregg, who is also uh, an occasional visiting professor at Trinity. Chris is uh, a professor at Trinity, and we are so excited to have him. I met him in person just a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, at the Rethinking Hell Conference in Seattle. And as you'll see, Chris, I'm wearing my Seattle T-shirt that I got <laughs> on that trip. So uh, I'm, I'm excited to have you here, Chris. Thanks for coming. Anything you want to pump before I turn to Keith. No, no, just it was a real um, uh, blast for me and a real pleasure and honor to be able to meet you in person after we'd already developed something of a friendship uh, online. Um, so and, and I gather that you probably had a good time at the conference. It seemed like everybody did and all the other speakers. It, it, there was a real spirit of camaraderie there and unity despite our disagreements on, on the topic. So um, I, I don't think it could have been any more successful unless twice as many people showed up. Uh, but um, that is the way that theological conferences tend to go. So anyway, I, it was a real joy to meet you. I'm, I'm glad to have done so. And I look forward to uh, talking with you guys today. Yeah, and I just want to say about that conference that one of the highlights for me and highlights for some of the attendees who were Trinity students 
that they weren't there, but they heard about it is that at lunch and I'm completely alone on this tonight, but the two of us, me and Paul Copan got to team up against Chris state at lunch (laughs) on the issue of Calvinism. So that was pretty fun. Yeah, but see now you're you're with two Calvinists right now, and so we can team up on you. Although he's an Amarildian, uh, which you know, uh, anyway, I don't I don't mean to let the cat out of the bag. He can speak for himself, of course. <laughs> well, anyway, we're glad to have we you. We Amarildians are uh, the true consistent version of Calvin. <laughs> Well, Keith, with that, uh, we have here Dr. Keith Sherlin, who is one of our graduates at Trinity, multiple degrees, I think, from Trinity. Isn't that right? And now you and then you went on to is it Northwest to get your uh, Ph.D. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself, what I might have gotten wrong just then and anything that you'd like to promote uh, to help with your ministry. Uh, it's good to see you, Dr. Hunter. So glad to be here with you and Chris. Uh, appreciate both you guys. Uh, look forward to this conversation we're going to have. Uh, yes, graduated with a master's degree from Trinity and also a philosophy doctorate from Trinity. I uh, have a doctor of systematic theology from Schofield Seminary, and I'm working on my philosophy doctorate in dogmatic theology with Northwest University in South Africa and England right now. Well, Keith, um, just I, we're not going to spend much time doing this, but since you have been through the Trinity gauntlet, can you can you speak to your experience as a Trinity student and graduate? Yeah, I, I loved my time at Trinity and was greatly blessed by it. Uh, I have the unique privilege of having two hunters on my diplomas. One was the your father, uh, Dr. Harold Hunter from a master's uh program was the signature on that one and then of course your signature on my phd and you were in my phd dissertation committee there and one of the things i love about trinity is its commitment to evangelical essentials and also its openness to non uh, allowing other secondary issues to have variety and diversity amen amen well, Keith, I'm so excited to have uh, you here as well, and uh, this is going to be great. The reason that we have these two guys here is because we're going to be looking at some uh, passages of Scripture that the um, atheist that's going to be presenting here on video for us, um, he raises some some issues that, based on where you stand theologically on some secondary doctrinal issues, uh, you might answer those questions slightly differently. Um, and so what we're going to do here is, is I'll let you guys parse that out more, um, because as I already said, this is not exactly my realm. It is my dad's realm. I could have had my dad on here, but, uh, I wanted to spotlight some of our current Trinity guys, but, um, it's not really my deal. So I'm going to let you guys parse that out more for us as we move forward. Um, but I think this is going to make for now, this is not a debate. These guys are not debating. Now, if they do want to disagree and discuss a little bit, that's perfectly fine. But that's the intent here is not to like see who wins and loses. Although I'm sure that since it's the internet, people will look at it that way, but that's not our intent. So, uh, with that, anything, Chris, you're the one that found this video initially, anything you want to say before we jump right in? Uh, just, I enjoyed responding to a previous video that Moore did with you on a previous episode of Trinity Radio. Um, uh, for those who aren't familiar with who Morg is, it might behoove them to go back and watch that episode that you and I did responding to him so they can get an idea of who he is. But to, to make, to put things sort of succinctly, um, he is the, probably the, the most prominent spokesman of a small but vocal um, group of people that I think, oh man, I've forgotten what they call themselves. Um, 
I'll have to remember what that is. But anyway, they're they're a group of people that uh, think that uh, there are no there is no God except for ourselves uh, in sort of a pre-existence, um, and that ultimately God is mathematical energy. You might recall that that's something we discussed when we did a response. It's 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 really some strange stuff. Um, and in the past episode that we did, we responded to his uh, to, to certain claims that he makes. Uh, I don't even remember what that was anymore. Um, and he does a lot of different videos. But recently, I think a few weeks ago, somebody posted on Trinity that he had done this video. Um, and because it's on a topic that I have spent a lot of time in, um, I reached out to you and said, hey, maybe this would be an opportunity not just to do a response video, but also to introduce some of your uh, viewers to the some of the multiple views that are out there in, in Christianity on um, on the end times and stuff like that. So I'm yeah. looking forward to uh, discussing those. Well, cool. Well, all right. Hyperians, well, we... that's right. Z Zamo says in the chat, Hyperians is what they call themselves. Thanks for that, Zamo. Yeah. Yeah, Zom, Zomo, I was calling him Zom for a long time. Zomo's a good good listener, friend, and, and everything. All right, let's jump right in and let's listen to his introduction to this. This will kind of uh, shape the video for us, so here we go. According to mainstream religion, lying is a sin, but I bet you didn't know that the Bible shows that Jesus is a liar. And it wasn't just a little white lie either. It's about as big of a lie as you can possibly imagine because it's about the end of the world in a situation that's actually similar to what we're experiencing right now. I'm going to show you the one verse that shows that Jesus is a liar and what it has to do with the end of the world. Man, big claims there. Um, so let, let's just jump into clip two and, and let's start hearing him explain this lie, um, that Jesus is supposed to have told. So here we go. And this is going to kind of be his summary of, of what he thinks this has to do with the end times. Before I can show you how Jesus clearly lied in the verse that shows it, clearly. you have to know a little bit about the clearly. end of the world, or what mainstream religion calls the end times, or the great tribulation. So according to mainstream Christianity, this will be a cataclysmic event when wars will break out everywhere, the Antichrist will come to power, and demons will roam the earth attacking people. Yeah, really. Yeah, really. Okay. Um... Uh, what say you guys on this uh, this discussion of end times so far? I think you probably you have different first, different takes on this, don't you guys? Well, he's uh, uh, certainly more uh, speaking to my uh, genre of theology. He's addressing more of the premillennial perspective of the end times, which I am. So uh, that is a pretty dominant view in Christianity right now. So he has that much of his. Yeah, in fact, awareness, in, in right? fact, real quick, Keith, if you don't mind, let me just say for anyone that might listen to this, um, when people hear about different views of the end times or different views of revel, actually, when people hear different views of revelation or eschatology, um, sometimes when people think of the book of Revelation, they hear that there's more than one view. They think, well, I know of like the premillennial post-millennial, I know of the pre-trib, mid-trib, uh, you know, those kind of things. It, which one are you talking about? When in reality, a lot of people may not even be aware that there are four uh, main views uh, that are that are more hierarching than that about, say, the book of Revelation. I know we're talking more about Matthew tonight, but about things like this. And that, that is, uh, there is the futurist perspective, and Keith would be a futurist, I think. And then there is the preterist perspective, 
And that would be Chris's perspective, I think. Now, Chris would not call himself a partial preterist, but I'm going to say that he is what many people today think of as a partial preterist because there are major problems with a hyper preterism that is sometimes just called preterism. And I know you kind of want to take back that title. Then there's the historicist position, which um, thinks of, say, the book of Revelation as being more laid out through uh, the history of the church. And and very few people hold that view today. And then you have um, an idealist position, which says it's not so much important that these things are like actual events that took place at any particular time. This is just stuff you can draw from as imagery or whatever at any point in um, in Christian in the for the Christian life, whoever you are at any point in uh, church history. And so uh, th- there are various views. And I think one of the major differences that I think does play into maybe not directly, but indirectly into our discussion today is the fact that Chris is. Um, a preterist and Keith is a futurist. Am I right on that, guys? Yeah, that's right. Um, I, I mean, I don't want to speak for Keith, but but at least in, as as far as I'm concerned, yes, I, I'm a preterist. Um, I won't go into why I am not a fan of the term partial preterist. If people want to find out why, that's uh, they can watch the episode of my show, The Apologetics, uh, in which I introduce viewers to preterism. Um, but yeah, I, I am of a, what is probably now a, a minority of Christians who think that most biblical prophecy, but not all, um, was fulfilled in the past, most especially uh, in uh, surrounding the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Um, that, uh, whereas most of the prophecies that um, uh, that are normally uh, talked about by Christians as, t- as taking place in our future, um, you know, the beast, uh, the number 666, the Antichrist, the Great Tribulation, um, like I said, I think those things are found their fulfillment in the past, unlike the resurrection and, and the second coming and things, which I, I think are in our future. Um, futurists, would say that those things I just mentioned, the, the Antichrist, the number 666, the beast, those things await fulfillment in our future. That's mm-hmm. why they're called futurists. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, Keith, that that would apply to you, but feel, feel free so, to Yeah, so I, I initially interrupted you, Keith, and I'm sorry about that, but um, I just wanted to make sure that our listeners have a little bit of background. We have a lot of people who are interested in the Christian atheist debates. They might not be as aware of some of these theological issues. So, so Keith, back to you. What are your thoughts about this? Clearly, he is responsible responding more to something that you would deal with. My screen just went blurry. Can you still see me okay? We can still see you. You you do look a little fuzzy, but we can hear you perfectly fine. Okay. Yeah, so I am a futurist. Uh, I am of the premillennial camp. Now, the historic pre's, as you mentioned, the historicist view would be people like Dr. Wayne Grudem and George Eldon Ladd would be some of those gentlemen in the historic, historicist perspective. But I do come from the futuristic perspective of a dispensational premillennial view and when I say dispensational it primarily relates to our view of Israel which will come into play in our conversation with his discussion there in Matthew 24. Anything to add Chris before we move on? Just that the the point of laying out some of those major differences between Keith's and my view is that we just heard Morg make the claim that according to mainstream Christianity, the Great Tribulation, um, wars, and all those things that Jesus will mention in Matthew 24, and and we'll hear Morg start to introduce that chapter in a moment, he says all of those things mainstream Christians believe are in our future, and I'm just making the point that that is true for probably the majority of Christians, at least in the West, um, but there are many, many mainstream Christians, including myself, who think that those things he just listed were in fact fulfilled in our past and that 
right there is going to uh, annihilate, excuse the pun, Morg's uh, claim that Jesus is a liar, but we'll get to that when we get to it. Yeah, so big picture, before I just play the next clip here, just want to say basically um, the different, the, the, the noteworthy difference for our discussion today between Chris's view and Keith's view, as I understand it, is Chris would say much of what we think about when we talk about some of these events um, that are that are that are thought of by many to be future oriented. We'll see if Keith comes back in. Are things that happened in the first century, uh, culminating in with the destruction of the temple. But but the reason we refer to Chris as a partial preterist is because there are some things that are still yet to be realized in the end. You're back, Keith. Good. Um, whereas Keith would say, no, no, no. Some of those things that you're trying to say. Chris were fulfilled in the first century or were relating to things in the first century are still yet to come. And so that will then, when we come to a discussion like this, is going to have major ramifications for how you understand perhaps Jesus' words. So with that, let's go on and take a look. Next, he's going to start talking about Revelation chapter 20 um, and the millennium, the nature of the millennium. And so this will get us further into the discussion here. Eventually, Jesus will return, and this is known as the second coming, and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth and have the devil chained up for a thousand years. Then he'll be released again. Okay. Um, whoops, that's just me. Where are you guys? There you are. So, Keith, is that... You're the only one that matters anyway, Braxton. <laughs> well, I've just recently started a Pritchett cam for our Friday live stream where it's just Pritchett on the screen some of the time, and he'd prefer me just leave leave it on him all the time. But, Keith, uh, uh, anything wrong with what Morg just said, at least in terms of articulating your understanding of the biblical doctrine? Well, if you're an unbeliever, a lot of things in the Bible are going to be weird to you. Uh, miraculous things. The difference between a liberal and a conservative is the conservative believes in miraculous things. A liberal or an unbeliever does not believe in the miraculous. And so if you're reading the Bible with a anti-miraculous presupposition, uh, the Red Sea parting or an axe head floating or a donkey talking or a lot of judgments and tribulation to come and the Things that we see in Revelation could be very mysterious or even frightening, or as he even mentions in some parts of his video, how it scared him. Or it could be something that you just believe to be weird and crazy. Yeah, it's yeah. like and I say a lot of the time, Keith, hey, we're Christians. Expect us to say Christian stuff. You know, if you come to the Bible already assuming that nothing supernatural can happen, that there's no miracles, that there's... Well, then that's what you're going to conclude. That, I mean, this is a big problem, the, the Jesus seminar. They, they come, let's find out whether what Jesus says and does is, is really, you know, uh, miraculous and all that. But we're going to assume ahead of time that miracles don't happen. I mean, don't be surprised, right? So, uh, yeah. Chris, uh, over to you. Yeah, so what I just wanted to point out is that uh, the way that Morg has just laid it out reflects a very typical, I think, premillennialist reading of uh, Revelation chapter 20. Um, but for those of us that are not premillennialists, I'm an amillennialist, uh, I don't think it's true that the second coming happens and then there's this thousand years during which Satan is bound. Uh, I'm going to be doing an episode on Revelation 20 and the millennium, an episode of my show, The Apologetics, in, in a couple of weeks so people can check it out uh, when that happens. But in the meantime, suffice it to say that I think um, the second coming is what happens at the end of the millennium. I think the millennium began in the first century um, and that Satan is indeed bound in the way that I think the book of Revelation intends to communicate that he's bound. Um, so, again, we're running into this kind of conflict where um, 
what Morg is saying is true for probably the majority of Western Christians, but certainly not all mainstream Christians, including myself. Anything you want to add to that, Keith? I mean, I'm sure well, you're chomping at the certainly. bit with a lot to say. Well, well just remember, certainly. though, remember, though, that's not a debate. I know, we can I have know. a debate on the show in I'm the future. I'm tempted. I know what gets it, but... clicks, man. <laughs> well, I think that um, the, the issue here is with him critiquing the uh, premillennial view, he doesn't even understand the premillennial view. So it's a, uh, it's a hasty conclusion, really, for him to make a lot of these assertions that he's making because he doesn't even understand the premillennial view from the premillennialist perspective as to various options for what these texts can mean. Yeah. No, I, I'll agree there. Um, when, we, when we get to the part where Morg, uh, uh, I, I don't know if, if you're going to play this part of the video, but there's a part in the video where he says what he thinks are the typical Christian answers to the charge that Jesus lied in the text that we're going to be getting to. Um, and I'm not a premillennialist, premillennialist, but even I recognize that that's not how premillennialists are, and futurists are um, accustomed to answering that charge. So yeah, he's he's clearly not as familiar with the terrain of this debate as he would like his viewers to think he is. Okay, well, on that note, let's get to one of the most recognizable features of the futurist premillennialist position, and that is the rapture of the church. And uh, he articulates this, and like you say, Keith, we're going to see, the, the, at least the most obvious criticism he seems to have is just that it sounds weird or sounds crazy. But of course, um, there are, uh, number one, there are a lot of things that sound really bizarre that happen to be true. You understand that when you study physics and quantum mechanics and all those kind of things. Secondly, if you don't, buy if you don't buy the supernatural or you presume it's not true yeah don't be surprised when you when you ditch those things but here's what he has to say about the rapture anyway before all that happens before the world is thrown into chaos everyone who believes in jesus will disappear again yes really they all just literally vanish instantly and they're transported to heaven i'm not making this up this mass disappearance occurs so that believers will be safe before the terrors of the end times happen. And this is known as the rapture. Okay. Um, is that what you heard there, Keith? Mockery? Well, the problem we have here, again, is now he doesn't even understand Orthodox Christianity. Or if he does, he believes Orthodox Christianity is weird. A lot of people say to me a lot of times, and students when I teach in various seminaries or uh, preach and teach in various places, they'll say things like, oh, well, you believe in the rapture. Well, we don't believe that. I'm like, well, all Orthodox Christians believe in the snatching, taking away the resurrection at some point. Now, it's like D.L. Moody said, if if our watches don't line up on the time, that's another matter. But we all, as Orthodox Christians, and even Chris being a preterist or partial preterist, I know he didn't like that term, but he doesn't adopt, he just debated someone, I think, who classified themselves as a full preterist who believed Jesus had already returned and there was no future resurrection. So, in Orthodox Christianity, everyone who is a believer and confesses the foundational confessions of the early confessions of our universal body of Christ confession, we believe in a future return of Jesus where there is a resurrection. And that resurrection is another term for the rapture. The translation sometimes is what they call it, the great translation, the great snatching away. So if that's weird... Well, Jesus being born of a virgin is weird. A dead man who comes out of the grave three days later, that's weird to an unbeliever. And so, again, we're, we're dealing with his bias that's bleeding through. He can't be, see beyond the bias to see that there's a miraculous nature to these matters that we're looking at. 
Yeah, but let me let me push back just a little bit and say that I don't think it's quite true that we all believe in a rapture, whatever we want to call it. Um, there's more to rapture theology than merely the resurrection of Christians when Christ returns. Indeed, we all do believe that. Every genuine Christian believes that, and those who don't aren't genuine Christians, in, in my obviously very humble opinion. But... Um, uh, but there's more to rapture than that, right? According to rapture theology, Christians and Christians alone will be raised from the dead, those who are dead, and those who are not dead will instantaneously vanish, leaving even their clothes behind, if you follow the uh, dispensationalism of people like Tim LaHaye and stuff like that, um, and, and, and they'll vanish while flying planes and driving cars and things like that, and they will uh, appear in heaven with the resurrected Christians and then remain off earth having been resurrected for anywhere from uh, three and a half to seven years while um, a whole bunch of other events unfold on Earth during which almost exclusively unbelievers are around. They're the ones who are so-called left behind, which is something we'll get to as well. So, so I just want to make I just want to call out, it doesn't seem to me as if all there is to rapture is resurrection. There's all this other baggage as well that we preterists and, and amillennialists would say isn't in fact found in Scripture. Well, again, we're talking about peripheral matters what happens in the second coming lord the premillennial dispensationalists would say the coming of the lord encompasses like his first coming encompassed 30 30 33 years the second coming encompasses around seven or so years so there's some events in it but when we just take biblical theology itself regardless of whether you're an amillennialist premillennialist or postmillennialist when we read first thessalonians 4 we all agree the Lord will descend from heaven, cry and command the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Mm -hmm. Now, whether we uh, say there'll be some other matters like the dispensationalists do, or we say this will be the full end right here, we do realize that there is a resurrection, and it doesn't matter if you're flying a plane or watching TV, whether you're an amillennialist, postmillennialist, or premillennialist, you're going to be resurrected right there on the spot instantaneously. So mm -hmm. all the views agree with that much. Yeah, and absolutely agree there. So his problem is when he gets into this is weird and it's crazy and frightening. I mean, somewhere and I got some notes here where he talked about these types of things scared him as a kid. Uh, maybe he has prophetic TSD, PTSD, prophetic trauma syndrome. <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> Keith, I'll make but, the dad jokes around here. <laughs> uh so his PTSD, whatever he has here, has to do with a misunderstanding. That It's like if I take my glasses off and I have this lens that I put up in front of me and it's already colored and shaded. That's his issue. It's a First Corinthians issue. His eyes are, are blinded, it seems to be, um, from understanding the miracle nature of resurrection. And I guess if you are an unbeliever and you believe that these things are true, that could be frightening to you and probably should be because that's a defining moment in the history of the universe. That is a cataclysmic moment. <clears throat> well, you know, the three of us here, we could we could probably talk and talk all night. But I do want to say, because we do have a lot of listeners who are atheists and, um, you know, the, the thing that I think is very important to note when you consider Christian theology and consider the claims of Christians 
and our over, overall worldview is we do live in a world that, uh, in the Western world anyway, we live in a culture that is very much um, baptized in secular ideas um, about the nature of the universe. It, there's, a, there's a strong naturalism that's there baked into how we think about um, what should be taught in the classroom and what sh- ha- you know, how we discover things about the world. There's a scientism there, even if it's a soft scientism. And so um, whenever we're asking people to consider whether Christian claims are true or consider the internal consistency of Christian theology, we would just ask that do, do an internal uh, investigation. Say, okay, I'm going to assume that the supernatural exists and that this stuff is real for the consideration of what you're saying and see if it makes sense. Because we think it does make sense. We think that Christianity, whether Chris or Keith or I are right or wrong about the specifics of secondary doctrinal issues, we think that Christianity in general makes the best sense of the nature of reality. Um, all right, so let's uh, let's move on to, that. in fact, that point that you brought up, Keith, about what he thinks, that whether he has prophetic, whatever you, PTSD with the prophetic. Let's take a look. <laughs> Now, by the way, I want to mention I was born into a strict Christian household and I was a Christian for many years. And the idea of the rapture was absolutely terrifying. Whenever my parents would leave to go shopping or whatever, I'd run to the TV and turn on the news to make sure that the rapture didn't happen, that I wasn't left behind. I can't emphasize enough how ideas like hell and the rapture are traumatizing for children. Yeah, Chris, you actually said we ought to cover this. You put that it was optional, but I think you did that for my benefit because I spoke on this very issue at the Rethinking Hell conference. Is that why you mentioned it? No, but that's a good point. No, the reason I mentioned it was just because, um, you know, all three of us, I think, would consider ourselves to one degree or another apologists. And I think that it's important um, as apologists to observe, as you guys already have done, that um, whether something is traumatic or not, um, doesn't matter if the thing is in fact true, right? Um, I think you offered an analogy, something like this in your in your presentation of the conference. You said if if uh, um, if a person has gone to a doctor to get, get some sort of test and they go back home and then they get a phone call saying you've got stage whatever cancer, that's going to be traumatic and terrifying. But that's a good thing, right? It's it's going to prompt them, hopefully, to get the kind of treatment that they need in order to um, to have their lives saved. So so the fact that if it is, in fact, traumatic, my question is, so what? The question is whether or not it's true. And if it's false, well, then, yeah, the trauma is worth discussing. But if it's not, um, I don't see the trauma as being all that relevant. Meanwhile, consider how traumatic atheism is for many people, given that it leads very often and logically so to moralistic nihilism, you know, to th- there being no meaning, no purpose, no moral, no objective morality. Um, you die and you're gone and there's no hope for humankind because eventually humankind will go extinct millions of years before all of the universe dies a heat death. That's traumatic. Um, but again, the trauma doesn't matter if it's true so um this this i this whole thing about religious trauma system syndrome this is something that he does in other videos as well um just to me strikes me as an utterly wrong question to be asking the yeah, question I mean, to be asking is whether or not it's true yeah i mean it, you'll be happy to know keith as a fellow southerner that um i alliterated my points at the rethinking hell conference <laughs> and they all began with t you know they were saying that, it, that hell was terrifying and traumatic and uh, tyrannical. But here's the thing, as Chris just said, if, it, if it's true, it's true. I mean, even with things that are 
it's true with things that, like you said, where the terrifying and traumatic nature is motivating. But even in a case like, like let's say a woman uh, is engaged to a man and she discovers some evidence that perhaps he's cheating on her, that would be terrifying and traumatic. But if it's true, she needs to know. Same with a man who's a lifelong smoker. If he finds out he could have a serious condition, that could be terrifying and traumatic. But if it's true, he needs to know. So this business about teaching children about hell is traumatic and terrifying and, and it's child abuse and all these kind of things. Or that the rapture of the church, that we might have nightmares and be scared that the rapture is taking place all the time. That may seem terrifying and traumatic, but if it's true, it's true. And I think you would say, Keith, that if one has the proper worldview and has committed themselves, repented of their sins, trusted in Jesus Christ, then the rapture, though uh, the fear of the unknown might always be there on some level, doesn't have to be a terrifying prospect. Isn't that right, Keith? Certainly, if you're born again and love Jesus, it's a comforting. And in, in, in the words of God, Paul actually said he wrote these things to give comfort. So I always tell students right off the bat, if you're reading this, and it's not bringing you comfort, something's wrong somewhere. So we need to find out where is that something at, why you're not experiencing the comfort that was supposedly supposed to come when you read this text or this letter from Paul. I mean, he said it so plainly. He said, therefore, encourage one another with these words. So these texts here to encourage us and to bring us comfort and to give us courage and faith and hope, but if that's not happening, then that's a sign we need to do some introspection of our heart as to why these texts aren't helping us come to that uh, emotional experience. Yeah. And, and, and Braxton, didn't you make the point as well? I think it was you. might have been one of your other fellow speakers that um, that these texts about God judging and that's part of what, you know, the, the rapture, the resurrection, the, the end times is all about. Um, these texts aren't received nearly so negatively in cultures where, or or, or pe by peoples where uh, who suffer injustice that never seems to be resolved, right? Mm -hmm. So um, we, when when we're in raised in comfort in the West and we don't have to struggle with poverty or oppression or whatever, yeah, God judging can sound a little harsh. But if you're somebody who has experienced injustice and you have no hope of experiencing justice apart from the prospect that God will judge, um, well, then this stuff is actually quite encouraging. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's funny. Slam RN says, really? The secularists scare kids by saying the earth is dying. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, climate change, you know, this all this movement of the world's going to be uh, expiring. They have all different predictions, 7, 10, 12 years. So there's always ideas out there that can be startling to you emotionally. Um, but in the Judeo-Christian worldview, we always go back to what is truth. And once we discover truth, if we discover that truth is a person and we're rightly related to that person, then we can escape that emotional trauma that I think he experienced. I always found it odd whenever Christopher Hitchens, the late atheist uh, popularizer, would always say he would he would mock the idea that the universe is intelligently designed for life. And part of that would be he would say, look, it's going to end in a heat death and, you know, everything is going to be destroyed, some design. And I think, is he aware that Christians even talk about eschatology? Does he even have any idea about the resurrection of the cosmos and, and all of that? I mean, I don't know. Um, but let's let's move on to uh, now we're going to talk a little bit about 
that lie, the specific thing that this video is related to as we go to look at the Olivet Discourse. So let's see what he has to say here. So Jesus is out talking with his disciples and they ask him about the end of the world. In Matthew 24, 3, they ask Jesus, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Now, I, I, I clipped it off right there because, Chris, I think you mentioned that you wanted to say something about that alone. Or do you want me to go on and play the next clip? No, I, yeah, I, I'm happy to. Um, the, what he has just quoted, Matthew uh, 24, verse 3, um, is indeed one very common way that that is translated. Um, but it's not the only way that it's translated. I'm looking at the English Standard Version, for example, and it doesn't say what will be the sign of your coming in of the end of the world, but rather what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age. Uh, the, the Greek word is I own, and that does not typically mean world. That would be cosmos or some other Greek word. This typically has to do with a time period, an epoch, an age. Um, and, and, and combine that with what answer um, Jesus, or what prompts the disciples' questions. Just in the very previous verse, Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple that was then standing. And the, his disciples came to him in verse 1 and were pointing out the buildings. You know, people don't have any have a real trouble grasping just how glorious the first century temple was, um, brilliantly shining uh, with its gold plating or whatever that it had. And they're pointing him out to him and, and saying, look at these temples. And Jesus says something extremely provocative. He says, truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And it's that that prompts his disciples to say, well, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, that what will be the sign of your coming leads a lot of Christians to think that his disciples are asking two separate questions. When will these things be? The destruction of the temple that you just told us about. And when will be the, your sign of the coming, the sign of your coming and the end of the world? Um, and I'll let Keith comment on that when we get to the part about the lion stuff. But all I'm saying is, I think the more natural reading is that the disciples are asking about one thing, and Jesus answers that one thing, which is the destruction of the temple in the first century. And that's something we'll continue to discuss as we watch more of this clip. Keith? Well, I certainly uh, would see the translation properly being there. That's something Dr. Lewis Barry Chafer noted in his Systematic Theology, that a lot of times the translation world is the incorrect translation of that. And interestingly, and I'll uh, bring up this more, when we get to the more focal point of the lie that he brings out about generation, something that he misses, and almost, uh, I'm going to say, a majority of scholars that I read, Bible commentators and teachers, this text, most likely, according to Dr. Merrill Unger, who was a Johns Hopkins University Semitic scholar, a double PhD scholar in Oriental languages, this is an Aramaic text. So that's going to come into play to how we understand some of these matters as we progress on. And apparently um, our friend here, our atheist friend, doesn't understand that. All right. So languages become important with this. Um, let's go on to the next part and get a little bit more into this as he gives a oh, summary. Uh, oh, go ahead, Keith. You, could I add one thing? Of course. Do you mind? So Ephesians 2.7. Um, this is why we would see when it talks about ages, I forgot to mention this in Ephesians two, seven, 
my particular version of theology it sees at least three ages of scripture. So it says the end of this age. Something that he's forgetting is there's a new age to come, which is at least in all circles, the resurrection of the new earth, the new earth to come. Now, we dispensationalists would have a, a preliminary stage getting there, the millennial stage. But in Ephesians chapter 2, 7, we see um, that there has to be uh, multiple ages, Ephesians 2, 7, so that in the coming ages, so Paul's in an age right now, and a plural set of ages is to come. Now, uh, however we delineate that, there's multiple ages of Scripture. So if Jesus says the end of this age, and Paul is in this age right now, and we're in this age right now, then there's ages, plural, to come, which at least one of those, which everyone would agree, is the resurrection of the new earth. So a lot of these people exhibit, they lack hope. They don't have hope of what's to come. Well, to have hope of what's to come, you have to have a relationship with the one who knows the future, the omniscient Jesus, who's the Alpha and the Omega. And just for listeners' sake, I'll point out that we preterists would likewise agree that the uh, the New Testament speaks not just of an age, but multiple ages. The difference between we preterists and uh, futurists like Keith is that we think that the age that the disciples asked about uh, the end of here in Matthew 24-3 was that age, not a future age. So as we, as we move into the next clip, this is where he's going to summarize the discussion about one being taken and one being left and all those kind of things. Before we get there, uh, I just want to say, if you enjoy what we're doing here, um, I, I always feel we're doing this, but we would love if you would help us out and partner with us as a ministry that is trying to bring apologetics and theology to what's going on. You can do that by subscribing to the channel. That doesn't cost you a dime. And uh, it, listen, do that for us right now. If you're an atheist, if you're a Christian, if you're a Calvinist, if you're an Arminian, if you're something else, um, you want to know when these videos come up, because obviously if you're here, it's interesting to you. But also, if you'd like to help us make the show better, you can really help us out at patreon.com slash Trinity Radio. For as little as a dollar a month, you get extra content. You get five seminary-level courses taught by me with PowerPoint, some with video. You get extra episodes. There are free eBooks there. Um, and uh, there's some content we make just for the patrons uh, to help Christians kind of be sharper in these discussions. And uh, so I really appreciate that if you'd be interested in helping us out in that way. But with that, let's move on to the next clip, and we'll continue to get the comments as this is getting more and more interesting as we hear more and more of what Morg has to say about Christian theology. So Jesus begins to describe to them all the terrible things that are going to happen. He talks about wars and bloodshed, earthquakes, disease, deceit, famines. He talks about how the rapture will occur and people will vanish. Okay, uh, comments on this, guys. Anything really to say? Well, notice uh, he didn't specific, specify which texts uh, or in which texts here in Matthew 24, Jesus talks about the rapture. Um, I happen to know what those are, but I'll let Keith uh, explain that if he'd like so that listeners can know what Morg is talking about when he says that Jesus mentions his the rapture here. Do you want to do that, Keith? Well, even in dispensational premillennialism, uh, many people in, in, in uh, our perspective do not believe the rapture is found in Matthew 24. My mentor, 15 years, Dr. Mal Couch, founder of Tyndale Seminary, uh, who, with Tim LaHaye, founded the Pre-Trib Research Center. Uh, I can still remember back in his hermeneutics course about drilling and grilling into this. If you hold to a classical, historical, grammatical hermeneutic, 
then you won't find the rapture in Matthew 24. That this is not talking about uh, one will be taken, one will be left. That's not referring to the rapture in his perspective. Now, Dr. Fruchtenbaum, a Messianic Hebrew PhD, New York University scholar I also studied under, who is a ethnic Jew, believing Jew, um, probably one of our best Old Testament scholars in Christianity right now, wrote the largest volume ever on Israel, Israelology, a missing link in systematic theology, about a 1,200, 1,100-page volume for New York University. It was part of his dissertation. Uh, he finds the rapture in Matthew 24, um, and he's in the minority view among the dispensationalists. So there's some discussion on this. All dispensationalists and um, in our camp would say 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, which precedes the day of the Lord in chapter 5, would be the resurrection of the saints and the leaving of the unresurrected saints, the unbelieving, uh, uh, excuse me, not un, uh, the, the unbelievers who would not be resurrected with the saints. They would be left to face the day of the Lord that chapter 5 discusses. And I remember sitting with um, um, a reformed scholar uh, from Harvard, Dr. Timothy George, and he was the first one to introduce me to the pre-trib idea out of 1 Thessalonians, and he walked me through chronologically, and Dr. George said, Keith, if you read this book chronologically, you wind up with a resurrection prior to the day of the Lord. Now, we can all uh, discuss how long that's going to be, um, but so when he mentions this, I think he grasps a little bit of the idea from what he's understood about there's a rapture and then people are left behind and there's these terrible judgments to come. Uh, that is a reality that we do believe the day of the Lord, the time of Jacob's trouble, where the wrath of God is going to be poured out on the universe. But here again, I want to stress this as an evangelistic point. That's frightening because somebody doesn't know the Lord, and it should be. Hell or judgment of any type of shape and form shouldn't be a comfort to somebody who doesn't know the one that's going to do the judging. But if you know the judge and you're his um, precious saint, it's not a frightening matter. So there should be these fears that come up if you don't know the one who's going to do the judging. Yeah, so this is good. I, I, I'm. You just taught me something, Keith. I appreciate that. That that it's. I'll accept what you claim that it's actually the, a minority of dispensationalists who think that Matthew 24, 37 to you know 41 is about the rapture. For for viewers' sake who aren't who, who aren't familiar with that, it's it's the famous left behind passage, right? So if you read the left behind series of books with Tim LaHaye and so forth, um, this this set of verses, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Um, he, he, verse 40, he says, two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left, right? Most dispensationalists I've talked to do, in fact, think that, they, think that this is a reference to the rapture, that the people left behind are the unbelievers um, and the, the, um, the Christians have been raptured away. I'm encouraged to hear that maybe that's not the majority dispensationalist reading after all, because it seems to me absolutely untenable that those verses are referring to the rapture. Because it's not the unbelievers who are left behind here. It's the Christians who are left behind, right? Because what Jesus says is that as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming, cutting, coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they, that is those people who were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, right? This is 
this is the flood judging most of humankind in the flood and slaughtering them all, leaving behind Noah and his family. That's the exact opposite of the way that dis some dispensationalists evidently um, push these verses into service in support of the rapture. And so, again, I'm just really encouraged to hear that not all dispensationalists take that view. All right. Uh, let's uh, let's move on to the next point where we're talking about some of the cosmic sign language. He talks about the sun darkening, the moon no longer giving light, and the stars falling from heaven, and how he's going to return in the clouds. Matthew 24, 29 through 30 says, After the time of suffering, the sun will darken, the moon won't produce light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly powers will be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. All right, uh, what do we have to discuss here? Well, so I'm curious, Keith, um, do, would you take a fairly literal reading of Jesus' pronouncements there, this, this cosmic language? Would you say that that's in fact describing what will literally take place in, in the cosmos, you know, uh, that there will be these uh, cosmic signs visible to the human eye, that kind of thing? Uh, our tradition would say that that is a um, cosmic disturbance. Um, I mean, think about it uh, from our perspective or anybody's perspective, even if you're not a dispensationalist, when Jesus died, you had some tombs resurrected and some people rose from the grave. Now, uh, I've uh, run into some people who would say that's not a historical event, um, but uh, for the most part, most of us in Christendom accept that to be some type of cataclysmic moment in the history of the world. Even the uh, veil, uh, even if you uh, don't accept that particular view of that resurrection there, you had the veil being torn in the temple. So the death of Christ or the second coming of Christ produces cataclysmic moments in the cosmos. It shakes the foundations of the world. There's some type of major event. And we read in Acts, the same way that you see him leave, the same Jesus that rises from your eyes in this way, you will see him return. Revelation chapter one says, and all the eyes will see him and there will be mourning. And there will be um, these huge movements of the, of the cosmos from the humans as well as the actual natural order itself because this is a huge transaction taking place in the heavenly realms and the earthly realms and it produces supernatural wonders okay no that's good so uh that's totally fine uh the reason why i wanted to play this clip though is because there isn't really good reason in my eyes anyway for assuming that the that this cosmic language is in fact intended to be taken literally and i just want to make that point for, for viewers and for morgue as just one example of many places in the old testament where this kind of cosmic language is used hyperbolically metaphorically whatever apocalyptically whatever however you want to phrase that um, as just one example of many such uses look at judges four to five um this is deborah singing about something that had had just recently happened. So it wasn't about the future, and it certainly wasn't talking about some sort of cosmic conflagration. It was a um, it was it was a, a defeat, a military defeat. And look at what Deborah sings. The kings came, they fought. From heaven the stars fought. 
from their courses they fought against Sisera. There are all sorts of examples like this. The the um, people of Israel um, were very accustomed to using this kind of cosmic language, again, as hyperbole or as metaphor or as apocalyptic language to symbolize the uh, very earthly um, events in history, the, the fighting of kingdoms and of nations and of armies. And so for Morg to just assume the sort of dispensational or, or futurist reading of this text as if it's literally talking about cosmic events, they may indeed be doing so, but there's certainly no reason for um, ruling out the possibility that they're being used in this way that the language is used all throughout Scripture. Well, we'll add to that, uh, certainly that's an option, and I think it's something that anybody should evaluate and consider because that could be an option that would help him overcome his belief, possibly. But his stick, or he, where he is stuck at, is because he's hinging that on the next set of verses we'll get to about this generation will see this. So he says, these things didn't happen, therefore this can't be so, and therefore Jesus lied. Well, um, if the understanding of generation here, Ganea, is not what he thinks it to be, then he no longer has a problem with these verses. He could accept your view or my view and still come out with a belief in a future return of Christ and not believe that Jesus lied because he's um, now reading that text through the Ganea understanding that he has in the next set of verses. Yeah, just to be clear, I also believe in a future return of Christ. Uh, but but putting that aside, um, yeah, I agree with you um, that— and that's exactly why I encouraged Braxton to have another person on to come from your perspective, because when we get to the generation text, and that's coming up next, I think, Braxton, um, then we'll be able to explain that there are, in fact, multiple ways of understanding that text. So looking forward to getting to that clip. All right. So let's go to that clip now, Matthew 24. And this is where the allegation of a lie becomes most explicit. So that's all well and good, but listen carefully to what he says next. Matthew 24, 33 through 34 says, When you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Did you catch it? He's talking to his disciples. And he says that everything he just described, the end times, the tribulation, the second coming, is going to occur before this generation passes. He tells his disciples that when they see all the disasters he just described, that his second coming is near and the generation will not pass before it happens. Uh, he's about 2,000 years late. So, guys, this is an important issue. Obviously, it's the crux of the video, and this is an important issue because... This actually is used by a lot of skeptics out there, a lot of atheists. It's like, hey, Jesus is pretty clear here, and these things didn't happen, so Jesus was just wrong. And anything you guys want to say is just jumping through hoops to try and make it work. So um, now we might see a couple of ways of responding to this here, but let me just say that the way of responding that says Jesus got it wrong, that Jesus was mistaken— is the worst possible option of realistic options. Um, this is, this is uh, let me say something that will offend both of you. So on Friday's live stream, someone asked us in the Q&A about the golden chain of redemption. 
And uh, Jonathan said, well, I don't think it's a golden chain. I think that uh, basically there's, I'll give you several ways of understanding this. And he listed out three or four ways that people have understood this. He said, here's another way. Another possible way of understanding this is that this is talking about those he foreknew is, um, you know, a uh, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away and Han and Chewbacca um, became Christians. And then after that, the Calvinist explanation is a possible explanation, obviously taking a dig at Calvinists. But um, let me employ some similar thinking here. There are there may be more there may be more than one way of understanding what Jesus is saying here or how what he's saying is going to play out would be a way to think about it. But the atheist explanation that Jesus was just wrong, I think, is the worst of these because it ignores the history of Christian thought that has been put into this issue. And so often one of the things that's frustrating to me when I listen to skeptics rail against Christian theological issues about which they may only know one view or may know the most extreme uh, expression of a view is they it's like they're the first person that ever thought of this problem and there hasn't been thousands of years of church history working on it. So I want to hear how you guys might resolve this or explain this um, so he's saying Jesus is just wrong here. Um, and and he, he even thinks Jesus is lying here. So go ahead. What, what do you guys think? Uh, whichever one of you want to take it first, that's fine. I know uh, Chris has been going first quite a bit here. So, Keith, perhaps you want to take it. Sure. Um, and you made a great point there, Dr. Hunter, about the fact that we have an issue here of him choosing the worst possible option on the table, which exposes... Uh, the bias of the heart, uh, and it violates the laws of love, too. Uh, if you believe his history, and you believe Jesus really did say this, and he really was in history, um, why would you want to accuse someone of a lie if there are other options on the table? And if you believe that Jesus was a good man, most people who don't even believe he was the Lord, uh, was God in the flesh, most people don't even believe that, say, well, he was a good man. Well, if he was a good man then why would you choose the worst option to make him look like a liar if there are other options on the table? Which tells us, again, there's a heart problem going on here. Now, with the text itself, um, again, I mentioned earlier, it's an Aramaic text. Now, Dr. Gleason L. Archer, a graduate of Princeton, Harvard, we won't hold against him that he went to some liberal schools like that, but he, he was a brilliant genius, and he was... Uh, a PhD grad at Harvard. The man spoke fluently 15 languages. And um, being a man after my heart, being in the field of the legal field, he was also a jurist trained in legal evidences. I think he even actually had a JD degree. I'd have to look that up again to make sure. But one of the things about Dr. Archer that I love was he wrote the Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties. And he says, I have dealt with one apparent discrepancy after another and have studied the alleged contradictions between the biblical record and evidence of linguistics, archaeology, or science. And my confidence in the trustworthiness of Scripture has been repeatedly verified. You can explain a lot of these contradictions, supposed contradictions, by the biblical text itself or archaeological information. Well, this is an Aramaic text. And Dr. Archer, who's not necessarily a dispensational premillennialist, although he was a mid-tribulationist, uh, a premillennialist, he made a really interesting statement about this. He said this word genea is found in the writings as early as uh, around the time of Homer and Herodotus and the Plutarch writings. And a good option is to see that this Aramaic term is more properly translated 
uh, Ghania, the Jewish race, will not cease to exist until all these things happen. And um, it refers to um, the um, Jewish people as a family or a race. And that's one possible explanation. As I mentioned earlier, the Semitic scholar, Dr. Merrill F. Unger, probably one of the most brilliant guys in our tradition, again, a double doctorate from uh, Dallas Seminary and um, Johns Hopkins University. He said of this passage, the king declared the miracle of the preservation of the Jews, despite their worldwide scattering and worldwide persecutions. Um, so this race or this Ghania is in the sense of a Jewish race. And that aligns very well with those of us in my tradition who hold to the promises uh, to ethnic Israel, that God made a promise to them in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, the Abrahamic covenant, the Abraham promise that was formalized in a specific covenant, that God promised them that they would never cease to exist and that they would eventually inherit this land that you could, if you were like George Washington, the, one of the forefathers of our country, uh, that so many don't understand today, they need to. Um, but George Washington was a land surveyor. You go out there and put stakes in the ground and mark exactly where God spelled it out. And you could hold God to that. Well, Jesus is saying here in one possible option that this Ghania will never cease to exist because I'm going to preserve this ethnic group, the Jews, who have been uh, notoriously, people have tried to notoriously exterminate them many a times over the history of the world. And this race will still be here. It will be preserved. And this race, you, the Jewish people, will exist until the end of time and will see this come to pass. And so there's a lot of uh, Semitic scholars, I just named two of the great ones within our tradition, Unger and Archer, that understand that one of the best readings of that is to see that as the ethnic Jews that will be here. And therefore, if you read that way, there's no lie, there's no deception. He's making a promise. You, this race of people right here that you represent, will exist. And when this race begins to see these things happening, and especially as Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbund calls, the abomination of desolation, when this happens, you will look up and know that the time is near for your redemption. Now, a second option in our tradition is that it's talking about the people who begin to see these things. It may not necessarily apply to the Jews, but it's talking to you who see these things. As in the text itself, it mentions that. It says um, this. It says that um, when you see all these things, so if no generation, if we use generation meaning uh, era of time, although that word is used in a variety of ways through Scripture, sometimes it even means up to a, hundred or so years, sometimes 80, sometimes 60, sometimes 40. In that option, option number two, if it means generation of a period of time, then whenever that generation sees all of these things happening in Matthew 24, which also includes the abomination of desolation of the temple, when you see that, you who are alive at the time that see all of these things, not bits and pieces of them, Dr. John Walford called that stage setting, a lot of times we'll see bits and pieces of these throughout history. That's the Antichrist working and trying to set up the stage to the full show to come. But the generation or the people that exist that sees all of this, including the abomination of desolation, which would be in the Daniel 77s, 
when the Antichrist defiles the covenant made to bring peace to the ethnic people of Israel. When you see that, you know then that you are in this time frame here where you will see the return of Christ. So just in these two options, there are linguistic reasons and contextual reasons to find a way in which to say this good man that most all unbelievers say Jesus was didn't lie. So unless you have a bias against Jesus and you want to try to make him out to be a liar, there are valid, substantive, serious, logical reasons that show why Jesus could have and was telling the truth. And apparently our atheist scholar here is not willing to look at those or he's not familiar with those. I'm not sure which it is. Or if he is familiar with them, then he doesn't want to acknowledge that these are options because he wants to pick the worst possible option to try to make Jesus look bad, which speaks more about his heart than it does Jesus' heart. So uh, one thing that we can take away from this so far is um, Jeff here says this is the first time I heard this generation mean the Jewish existence or ethnic Judaism. So with those two options you've laid out, Keith, there are some in the chat who haven't heard of some of these ideas. So... um, I think this is helpful. Uh, Chris, what's your take? Yeah, so I'm extremely tempted to show why the alternatives that Keith offered don't hold up under scrutiny, but I'll wait until he and I debate the issue if indeed we do. By the way, side note, we already have a debate scheduled, just not on this topic. And maybe after we're done responding to Morg, you can let us pitch that because I'm sure both of us would love to I have people talk come and that, watch. Yeah. Yeah. But um but because that's not because this isn't a debate, I'll I'll hold my cards until uh, until that debate. Suffice it to say that if you accept the standard lexical definition of the Greek word genea, and if you accept that it's the Greek text that was inspired, God breathed, Theopneustos, not the Aramaic text, if you accept that we don't really know what Aramaic text lies behind the Greek, even if there was an Aramaic text, after all, nobody thinks the Peshitta. Um, is the uh, is the definitive Aramaic text that Matthew was originally written in. If you accept all of those things, and if you accept that, actually, you know what, I'm, I'm offering the very rebuttals that I said I wouldn't do. It, you can accept all of that and recognize that Jesus is, in fact, saying that the generation of contemporaries to whom he's speaking would not pass away until all of these things take place. The question is, what are those things? If you think that Jesus is using the cosmic language in a way that no other biblical author does, if you think that he's actually talking about cosmic events and actually talking about his future return, actually talking about the things that um, uh, that Keith thinks that they're talking about, um, then yeah, I can understand why you would feel compelled to look for one of these alternative explanations for the phrase this generation. But if you take the preterist reading of this text and you think that Jesus is talking about the impending destruction of the temple in the lifetime of his contemporaries, then not only is it not a problem for Jesus's claim to be a genuine prophet that he said this generation will not pass away, this actually becomes an incredibly powerful proof of Jesus's legitimacy as a prophet. Because nobody in Jesus' day, no Jew in Jesus' day, would have thought that the magnificent Jerusalem temple, in which God's very Shekinah glory appeared physically, visibly over the uh, altar in the Holy of Holies, no Jew would have thought 
that God would uh, permit um, Roman armies to come and destroy the Jerusalem temple, especially not in the period of time that was known, that scholars know, was at this period of time called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, right? There, there was no, nobody would have thought that within a matter of a mere 30 or 40 years, armies would sack Jerusalem and destroy the temple, but Jesus predicted it, and with astonishing accuracy, both in terms of time and in terms of detail. Um, and so that's one reason why I would like viewers, including Morg, uh, to look into how we preterists understand this text, because I think that it um, not only resolves the challenge, not only solves the challenge that Morg is, is placing before us, but actually proves just how genuine Jesus is as a prophet. All right. Great options available. All right, let's move on. But he actually thinks there's more to say about this. Uh, I would want to say this. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Keith. Which Whichever side you come up with, whether you wind up with an option leaning toward Chris's side or an option toward uh, this side that I've spoken about, I just want to continue to stress this, especially to listeners and to Morgan, if he were to listen to this. I hope he does. And by all means, I'd love to talk to you even privately if you'd love to. Uh, if you listen to this, there is a way in which you can come to the honest, logical conclusion with integrity that Jesus was telling the truth. Unless you are set with a closed mind and not willing to look at any other option, whether it's Chris's view or my view, both views can, in an honest way with integrity, lead you to accept that this man standing there with these disciples was speaking the truth. And that's so important for him and his listeners to understand. There are honest ways to come to that conclusion and to come to know that one who was speaking that truth. Amen. All right, let's hear what else he has to say. We're getting toward the end, by the way, so stick with us, folks. We've got we've had about 100 people in the chat at any one time, at multiple times throughout the stream, so I'm excited people are interested in this. Uh, let's hear what he has to say next. That's pretty bad, but it gets worse because this isn't the first time that he said this. In Matthew 16, 27 through 28, Jesus says, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. You can't get more clear than that. Clearly this is a lie. It's as clear as can be, guys. He clearly lied. I don't know how you're going to get out of this. Well, why don't I go first this time and say that it's really easy for me to get out of this, because as I said, Jesus is, in my view, not talking about um, his future second coming or, or what might more accurately be called second advent. Um, we preterists recognize that all throughout Scripture, God and Jesus himself threatened to come in judgment and in times are said to have historically come in judgment. But nobody thinks that he that God, for example, literally descended from the sky on a cloud and, and destroyed Edom or, or, or any of the other, you know, Babylon or so forth. Um, this language of coming all throughout Scripture when talking about God is very often talking about God judging nations and peoples and, and things like that. Um, and we preterists think that that's exactly what the destruction of the temple in 70 AD was. It was a judgment upon first century apostate Judaism, uh, apostate Israel. 
Um, so I think it's true that he uh, that there were indeed some who were standing there right when Jesus was saying those words who didn't die before they saw this coming in judgment that the Son of Man did when he um, when he destroyed the Jerusalem temple. Now, what I will say before I turn this over to Keith, um, the way many futurists take this text is to say that the Son of Man coming in his kingdom here is a reference to the transfiguration. Um, I'll just say, before turning this over to Keith, in case this is the reading that he offers, I don't think that's even remotely plausible. Because the text goes on to say in the very next verse that the transfiguration happens a mere six days later. Imagine me saying, trust me, you guys will not see death before uh, six days from now happens. Right? I mean, the idea, clearly it seems to me, Jesus is saying there will be many who taste death before this happens, but not all of you. Um, and to suggest that that many would die in a matter of six days seems to me to be uh, extremely implausible. That having been said, I'll, I'll say no more and, and let Keith tell us how he would resolve this apparent challenge. Well, again, we have some diversity in our tradition on this text about the um, what this means when you will not taste death and some of you will see him coming into the kingdom. Um, certainly some of us in my tradition have held um, that view. I've never taken a hard stance on one of the three views we have. We've got three views in our tradition. Um, some view it as you mentioned the transfiguration, that they would see him coming into the sun, the, his, his glorified status there coming into the kingdom. Others of us have uh, seen it to be that Jesus coming in the power of the Holy Spirit coming into the body of Christ. And after his ascension, him sending the Holy Spirit, um, him going into the kingdom of God in eternity and sending the Holy Spirit. And that was a little bit further distance. And that would address the point you were talking about there. There's, it was about six to seven days or so afterwards that the transfiguration took place. So did anybody really die in that place if that text is saying that implying that some would die and some wouldn't? So another option is to see that as um, uh, the coming into his kingdom, Jesus' ascension, going into his kingdom and establishing himself as the risen king and then sending the Holy Spirit to empower the church and establishing the, um, the kingdom in earth through the believers, the born-again kingdom that's always been going on from Genesis to Revelation, but now in a special sense with the Holy Spirit coming to the earth. So that's one option to read that as well. Those are the two most prominent options um, for that text there um, in our tradition as to how to see um, the text where Jesus was uh, coming into his kingdom. I probably lean toward the idea of the ascension and that when he ascended into high, he went into his kingdom and began his um, heavenly reign as king, though not on the earth yet as king. Um, so, but again the problem that we have here is not so much there are no options on the table the problem we have is one who is discussing these matters not willing to either explore those options which is a problem of intellectual honesty not dealing with the honest issues on the table or ignorance not knowing that there are those options out there and that's the part that's troubling when you deal with a lot of these people who come with these anti-supernatural biases. They're automatically 
bent toward finding the worst possible option to try to discredit something without looking at options on the table that very well have merit to them that could explain the text in an honest way or present Jesus in a light as so many claim he was a good man. Um, we would claim that he is good not only because he's a good man, but because he's the God man and that there are options that can consistently uphold that. I just want to add support to what Keith said about it possibly, this verse possibly referring to Jesus' ascension. That's actually not far off from what I think, because this son of man language and coming in his kingdom language comes right out of Daniel. I think it's chapter 7, the um, the night visions that Daniel had in which the son of man comes before the ancient of days to receive his kingdom. That's not Jesus coming to earth. That's Jesus coming to heaven. It's the son of man coming to the heavenly throne to receive his kingdom. Um, and that coincides pretty nicely with the with the ascension. Um, so, yeah, I, I think Keith is right to offer that reading, and it certainly um, renders Jesus not the liar that uh, Morg seems to think he is. All right, two clips left, um, but now we're going to come into that segment of the video where Chris mentioned that um, Morg is going to try and respond preemptively to what he thinks some Christians might say in response. Um, specifically, perhaps this is just metaphorical language. Like here he's saying, look, obviously Jesus got this wrong. Obviously Jesus lied. It's clear. It's obvious. But maybe some Christians try to get out of this, not with the great answers that you guys gave, but maybe they just say it's all metaphor. So let's just hear what he says. What about if it's metaphorical? So here's the thing, if the Bible is so unclear about what is metaphorical and what isn't, then how are you supposed to know what's true at all? How are you supposed to know which verses are a metaphor and which are literal? What about all the verses that are sexist and homophobic? Are those metaphorical or are they literal? What about every single sin, every single command, every single promise? How can you possibly decipher what's literal and what's not if such a blatant statement by Jesus can be contested? Okay. Yeah. First of all, I want to say that we're going to see in a few minutes that he ends this video by saying, well, Jesus isn't going to come back. So it's up to us to save the world. And I'm thinking, do you mean save the world metaphorically? Do you mean save <laughs> the world literally? Do you mean survive death, not survive death, be con uh, absorbed into a cosmic consciousness? What are you talking about? Because if I can't tell when you're being metaphorical, how do I know you're not always being metaphorical? So um, that goes both ways. But anyway, um, that the Bible contains metaphors. I mean, that's why we have good exegesis is to parse things out and figure out what is a metaphor and what isn't. It always annoys me when I had a guy in Canada who uh, was an atheist who came and he listened to me speak and he said, listen, is the Bible to be taken metaphorically or is it to be taken literally? And I said, that's like pointing at a bookshelf in a library that has various genres of literature and saying, is that to be taken literally or metaphorically? Which book? Which part of that book? What are you talking about? The Bible is a collection of 66 books. So um, that's a question that I think often gets truncated um, and, and glossed over. But anyway, right. uh, Keith, sounds like you've got something prepared. I, just uh, just so you know, I don't know if the camera's clear enough to see this. can't but really the, see it. His, yeah, this, this booklet here is Humanist Manifestos 1 and 2 and the Humanist Declaration. And then there's the Humanist Confession of 2000. 
he's speaking directly from the humanist world religion. He may not even realize that, I'm not sure, but the Secular Humanist Manifestos 1, 2, and 3, and then the 2000 version, and the planetarian call to a planetarian uh, commitment. I think that was a, maybe the fifth version, or might have been in the 2000 version. Uh, him talking about there is no savior, we are going to save the world, that's directly from the religion and the ideology and philosophy of humanism, which he may or may not realize that he's embraced. But as for someone trying to get out of this by saying, well, it's just metaphor. And in that case, as you noted, it's a matter of hermeneutics. There's going to be metaphors in scripture. I mean, uh, certain things that he has said in his own video, I'm going to take literally, uh, um, when he mentions, for instance, when he says uh, the issues of sexuality about uh, they're sexist and homophobic. Well, there are literal, real uh, sexual differences between people and humanity. We have people who are heterosexual. So when he mentions those things, we take that literally. He's talking about people with different sexual lifestyles. We take that statement literally. So we words have meaning, and um, the matter is, of course, we have to determine by good scriptural principles or good hermeneutic principles or good linguistic principles in the context that's being used, what is the person trying to communicate by the words used? So everybody communicates with both ways. They communicate with metaphors, similes, uh, hyperboles. Um, oftentimes, one of my statements, you know, I said it today, somebody, I said, there's more odds of molasses running uphill during the January snowstorm than it is for that to be true. Well, that's a hyperbole. That's an exaggeration to make a point. And Scripture does that over and over and over. Say, and what, is, say, say it again. What I said about the hyperbole? No, say the hyperbole you gave. Oh, I told somebody today there's more there's more odds that molasses could run uphill during a January snowstorm than that to be true. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and uh, so all of us speak with metaphors and similes and hyperboles, and yet also literally where we mean what we exactly say without those uh, genres or those uh, linguistic um, um, types of speech coming into play. And this is a common problem among people who don't understand language. If you don't understand how words, syntax, structure, paragraphs, and books work together, a lot of people have never studied that. English is, whether you study in English or Greek or Hebrew or all, all different languages, if you're not well studied in those areas, and I don't mean to be harsh with our friend here who has said this, but it really comes down to um, ignorance of understanding how language works. And documents whether it's legal documents in my world of studying the Constitution or the biblical text in my world as being a theologian or in just a letter. If somebody writes me a letter and I sit down and look at it and read it, there are proper ways, which is the field of scientific study with hermeneutics, and this is why hermeneutics is so important in seminary and in fields that deal with language, there are proper ways to read texts and words and sentences and paragraphs and books and without that foundation or without that knowledge you throw out these statements like that that are just broad shotgun type statements 
that really miss the target and don't even address the real issues at hand. And that's a problem because when you do that, it highlights the fact that you're 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 speaking to something that you're really not aware of how the matter works. I might as well go and talk about nuclear fission. I don't know nothing. I don't know anything about nuclear fission. But if I start talking about it, you would realize real quickly how little I know about nuclear fission. I'm not a great hard scientist. Uh, it's one of my weakest fields, uh, uh, biology. If I start talking about a lot of matters related to biology, you're going to quickly realize I am not up to speed in a lot of those areas like a neurobiologist or a, a scientist who does this every day. And apparently our friend here is speaking on matters that he doesn't understand how language works. And again, I believe this goes back to the root of the problem. He has a heart problem. He's biased and now he's grasping at anything he can use to try to build his case, which again is a hasty conclusion, which has been fundamentally the problem with him throughout this whole video. He's made a lot of conclusions without well-grounded research to support it. Uh, yeah, and I Chris? just would like, yeah, I just want to piggyback on what Keith said there. Um, I wholeheartedly agree with everything that he said about the importance of uh, her sound hermeneutics and, and careful exegesis. But I also want to point out that this is something we do in day-to-day -day life and don't have all that much of a problem doing, uh, yes. discerning between when things are literal versus metaphorical. So, for example, just a few minutes ago in the chat while I was listening to Keith, uh, a friend of mine said in the chat, Trump won in a landslide on November 3rd. Now, whether you think that's a, a joke or not is irrelevant. The point is, is that one in a landslide, guess what? That's a metaphor, right? Yes. Or, or and, and take this. Here's an example that I, I was just curious while Keith was, was talking. I was thinking, could I find, what, what are some texts I could look at to see if I could find a place where literal and metaphorical are just sort of interwoven with each other? And the first thought that came to my mind was, what about the Declaration of Independence? I'm going to look that up and look at what the very first sentence says. The unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with one another, so on and so forth. There's no political bands. Right. There's no real uh, chains that are chaining people together. They're using the idea of, of a band. Uh, that chains people together as a metaphor, and yet they're doing it right there, we woven into the literal text as well. This is just, again, it, it is important. Hermeneutics helps us to figure out when a text is meaning something literally versus metaphorically. But even without a solid background in and training in hermeneutics, we can do a pretty good job of telling when something's intended literally or not. And and I think that's true of most of scripture. Um, so Wouldn't for example- Wouldn't you say, Chris, because that's a bias, if you don't have a bias and you're just reading naturally without any type of animus toward it, you can understand it? I don't think that's true of all of Scripture, and I think that the very text we're looking at is a good example. I, I suspect that many people on your side of this debate would read a lot of the text in Matthew 24 and think, well, gosh, it's just obvious that he's talking about literal cosmic events and so on and so forth. Um, whereas somebody like me reads it and is like, yeah, it's pretty obvious that he's talking metaphorically. He's using cosmic metaphors, you know. So I'm not saying that that, that is always clear. And I don't think Matthew 24 is, a, is, a, is an obvious case where it is, in fact, clear. I'm just saying 
that on many other topics, you know, the biblical condemnations about, say, homosexuality or, or biblical commands about how we're to treat one another, those commands, those prohibitions are not delivered in text that is even remotely um, metaphorical, you know, and that is really clear to any any unbiased reader of Scripture. Um, does that answer your question, Keith? Yeah, I'm just saying that I think that sometimes when, we, like what you did, Joe, you took the Declaration of Independence, which is a wonderful example. If we don't have any uh, affiliation with it, or maybe it's just something you're reading off the cuff quickly like that without prior thought to it, sometimes just the natural reading, you can identify it pretty easily, just in natural speech. Um, sometimes that's easy to do just by reading something in its natural context that you're not really, uh, you know, you remove the scriptural aspect or the religious aspect, and sometimes we all find that we can agree what a particular letter or a particular document says. All right, last clip, and we've kind of already talked about it a little bit, but might as well play it for the audience, and then we'll, uh, you know, I don't, I, I would say that if you have questions, to go ahead and line those up now. But honestly, we've been going at this for quite a while, and I'm sure that people want to get to bed. But um, just remember that on Fridays we have our Friday live stream, usually in the early afternoon, and uh, we answer questions. We have a topic. But we always answer questions as well, although. As I say that, it occurs to me, I don't want any questions on this topic. But anyway, let's go to uh, the last clip. Look, Jesus isn't going to come back to save the world. That's a lie. The truth is, is that it's up to us. There's no savior coming. We are our own saviors and we can change everything right now. We can come together and build a new world. So come on, instead of waiting for a savior, let's save the world together. We have the power to make it happen. Well, first of all, again, guys, I'm totally unclear on what he means by saving the world. Does he mean fight global warming? Does he mean try to build a uh, humanist uh, utopia? What exactly is he saying? I need more information on that. But um, what do you guys think about? I mean, obviously, um, this is if you take Jesus to have been lying at the outset. This has been one of Keith's principal points here. <coughs> is if you presume a naturalistic understanding of this, or even if he doesn't do that, if you presume that Jesus is not who Jesus says he is, and that your reading is the correct and only viable reading of the text, then perhaps the conclusion is Jesus isn't coming back. But we would say, and the point of this whole video is saying, no, 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 no. You're not, you're not engaging with the best answers to this question. Christians have been talking about this for a long time. So I think he's wrong on point number one about Jesus isn't coming back. But then on number, point number two, that we can save ourselves, I, I just, this is just wrong on the face of it. If, if, uh, if his perspective is correct, as far as I understand it, you're not going to end up saving yourself. Although, Chris, you have, I think, for some reason, invested a little more time in understanding his worldview. So it does he have a method by which he can save himself? Well, I mean, I think it probably depends on what you what, as you said, what he means by save the world. I, my, my understanding of Hyperionism, this this I would call a cult that um, that Morg is a uh, spokesman for um, that their belief is that um, <laughs> mathematical forces created the universe and that somehow those mathematical forces are in fact us prior to our existence here. Um, and so 
so so there there does seem to be something a little bit more than just the physical universe in this Iperian worldview. The problem, however, is that that nothing there's no as far as I can tell, there's no theology or in, or anything in there that says that we can prevent the inevitable heat death of the of the cosmos or that um or that we can achieve immortality right here and now so that we never die uh, or or anything like that at, at best, it seems that all Hyperianism has to offer is eventually you die, you return to the mathematical force or whatever that you were before you existed. I don't know um and then eventually the universe and all things in it die this inevitable heat death. And that does not sound to me to be a very positive prospect, certainly not one worth hoping for in the way that we hope for Christ's return. Um, well, it's, so it's, it's, like what a, to... it's like an impersonal salvation, and then that dies anyway. At least in material form, yeah. We just, you just revert to this mindless, you know, uh, or... or, or abstract mathematical force that created the universe to begin with or something like that. I've never been yeah, comforted. There's no, there's no real salvation. I, I've never been comforted by any concept, any eschatological concept that, that where I am absorbed into some Brahmin type thing where I no longer am a person. Like that's why the end of, uh, the end of your show, uh, what you call it? The good place. Sorry. Spoiler oh. alert. That was, I mean, like poetically, it was satisfying, I guess. But I, 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 that, I that would not encourage me in the least. I agree with you. Um, you know, it's, some people would say that there are a whole lot of Buddhists who long for that. But I actually think that's not entirely true either. As Clay explained, Clay Jones in his presentation, there is a certain number of Buddhists who literally think that you're going to become annihilated when you die or when you reach karma or, or sorry, uh, nirvana or whatever. But most, I think, Buddhists who believe in some sort of return to La Brahma or whatever, um, it's it may not be individual there, there may not be individualized consciousness consciousnesses at that point but there is still concrete being and and mind um just one mind rather, rather than all these millions of ones i could be wrong about that but that doesn't comfort me much either um and, and the other thing that i wanted to point out just as a last word for me on this clip that we just watched uh when i look at just when I just look around me in day-to-day -day life, when I look at the news, when I look at my own kids, I do not have any hope that human beings are going to be able to save the world, even in a sort of humanistic sense. Um, it seems to me, even putting aside the biblical testimony to my um, anthropology, it seems to me that the just day-to-day -day evidence you see on the TV and in newspapers and in your own day-to-day -day experience is that we're pretty rotten as human beings, and we're inclined to do evil. And um, you might be able to, for a, uh, for a short period of time, get a handful of people together that are willing to work together for some sort of humanistic utopia, but it's not going to take very long before a Hitler type comes along and slaughters them all. And that's going to continue to happen until Christ returns, and I don't find that to be very hopeful, and it's precisely why the return of Christ is, so, uh, is something worth hoping in, because then all of the injustices and oppression that we uh, see and experience in the here and now will be um, made, uh, made right. So well, I, 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 I'm sorry, I do look forward to Christ's return. Yeah. Well, amen. Um, so before, before we turn it back over to Keith uh, for his final thoughts on that, um, thank you so much, C. Denise. She says, so appreciate you guys sharing your time and the fruits of your learning with us. Rock on. All right. Uh, <laughs> Keith, with that, um, 
does Morg have any hope of joining in some kind of a human effort for salvation? Well, I pulled this down again, uh, as I mentioned, I ought to put a get, I, I've taught a course on this recently called Satanic Humanism, and um, I ought to do this for Trinity sometime, it'd be a good class. Um, he quotes almost word for word from the um, Seculars Humanist Manifesto. It says clearly in their declaration the ideas that he has embraced. Uh, we believe traditional authoritative religions that place revelation, God, ritual, and creed above human needs and experience do a disservice to human species. No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. Promises of immortal salvation or fear of eternal damnation are both illusory and harmful. It says we embrace reason and intelligence are the most effective instruments that humankind possessed. Uh, we reject all religious, ideological, and moral codes that denigrate the individual, suppress freedom, and dull intellect. So I want to stop right there, the intellect. And I want to challenge our friend listening to this. I pray he does listen to it. If you subject Christianity to the intellectual rigors of logic and reason, you will find more evidence supporting Christianity than any other religion in the entire world. Amen. So if you want to truly live out your confession that you quoted and basically said word for word, then accept a challenge. Archaeological evidence supports Christianity. Scientific evidence supports Christianity. The nature of the Bible, the uniqueness of the Bible supports Christianity. No other documents ever had the longevity and the uh, printing power and the uh, drawing power that book has ever had. And this is not a, a place to go into all the details, but I'm just giving you brief snippets. Our faith isn't lacking on intellectual rigor. Our faith can be tested, verified, and proven in a sense that the evidence uh, mounts up in our behalf, more so than any other ideology in the world. And I say that with absolute confidence and I would challenge our brother who wants to, and I say brother not since he's a believer, but in the citizen way, he created sense. I have to clarify that. Somebody will be upset with me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, our friend, our citizen, uh, our atheist friend here, I challenge you personally. Take the time to research our faith. Sit with some of us who have actually looked at the evidences and dialogue with us in an open forum or on a private forum, just personally, either way you want to do it. It boils down to this. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I always go back to something so basic. Josh McDowell spoke of this way. Dr. Paige Patterson spoke of it this way. Jesus is either a liar, Lord, or lunatic, and we can show tonight that there are ways to see him not as a liar. So now we're down to whether he is Lord or lunatic. And I believe we can show he's not a lunatic and we, he really is Lord. And that he resurrected from the grave and he's coming again. And one day our atheist friend is going to see him. And he's going to stand before him. And he's going to have to give an account of his life. And what we're doing tonight on this show, I hope, can encourage him to rethink some of these things and be open to an intellectual discussion and placing his ideas on the table for investigation. Chris, and I'll even offer up. I, well, before you, offer, before you say okay, anything, Chris, I just want to say that that was beautiful. And somewhere around here, I probably have 
an old cassette tape player with just as I am without one plea, and we can have an altar call here and maybe see some folks come to Jesus. But, uh, but yeah, some Amen. people throw in their legend, liar, lunatic legend, but that doesn't work because of the early date of First uh, Corinthians fifteen three through seven. So, but Chris, take it, take it away. No, I just. I was just going to say, first of all, I, I, Keith said it very well, and, and I was going to just say I'll even offer for him to come and have a dialogue with me on my show, as I suspect that you, Braxton, would be willing to let him do on yours. Um, so, you know, like Keith, I'm praying that Morg watches this, and if he does, hey, let's have a dialogue, and if you're not comfortable doing it publicly, let's do it privately. I'm very accessible, um, and uh, yeah, let, let, let's, let's talk about it, because I agree with Keith. I think that intellectually, in terms of, in terms of assessing the evidence, um, Christianity has infinitely more going for it than any other worldview, especially Hyperionism. Uh, so yeah, let's, let's have the dialogue. I think it'll be worthwhile. Uh, we're not going to do questions, but I'll tell you what it is. It is, there's been some nice comments here. Darren Plies says, Chris, Braxton, Keith, you guys are treasures to the body of Christ. Thank you. That's really meaningful because we hear a lot of negative stuff. And so it's helpful, um, to hear that kind of thing. Punch bowl haircut says preach. Zamo said, and he also said how glorious all three of our beards are. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> Zamo says, where is Pritchard? <laughs> Pritchett. Uh, he's at home playing family game night. But anyway, um, yeah. So, yeah, Finding Truth says we could do I Surrender All as well. I probably have a cassette tape of I Surrender All in here as well. But well, the, many, problem is, viewers, the problem is, the problem is, Braxton, really quick, how many of your, your viewers do you think don't know what a cassette tape is? Isn't that kind of scary? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> we got a bigger problem, though. If uh, if we were going to sing, that means it's the benediction, because that's the only thing I can sing. I start singing, everybody knows it's time to go home, and they leave. <laughs> <laughs> Are you currently pastoring somewhere, Keith? No, sir, I'm not. I've pastored for a long time, doing some work in the Billy Graham Evangelism Center now, uh, Search for Jesus Internet Evangelism, and uh, teaching in several different seminaries. Went to India last year and talked for 10 days at a seminary over there and really enjoyed that. Awesome. And doing a lot, of a lot of teaching these days. Well, before we go, I don't want people to leave before we get to this. So, um, yeah, Punchbowl Haircut says he loves cassette tapes. You know, they're coming back. That's the hipster thing now is to have cassette tapes. You can't break them. You can throw them right in the car, and they don't get scratched right. up or anything. I love them. And they don't skip when you hit a bump. And, of course, yeah. yeah. But, um, all right, so you guys are going to have an actual debate. Uh, at least that's the plan. Is that going to, first of all, tell us what's the topic as far as you've worked it out? When is it happening as far as you've worked it out? And is it going to be on the internets or is it going to be on stage somewhere in meat space? Both. It will <laughs> meat be on space, stage uh, in South Carolina. And uh, we're going to fly Chris out here and uh, another uh, theologian friend of his, Mark. And um, Corbin, I think, is what was his last Corbett. name? Corbett. Corbett, sorry. Um, Pastor Mark and uh, Chris are going to come down and uh, Pastor Brandon Paree and I are going to have a public debate. We'll live stream it as well as be face-to-face -face for a debate on uh, Chris's view of conditional mortality and annihilation of the soul. And our view, of course, is the um, view that... Uh, the traditionalist hell, view. Yeah, yeah, the traditionalist view. We don't use the word necessarily torture like sometimes they use. We call it the eternal punishment view, eternal 
eternal hell, everlasting consciousness in hell, where you experience that. So we'll be defending that. Wow. Yeah, and just just for because I don't think that Keith mentioned it, although you might have Keith. It's going to be March, uh, Lord willing, uh, Mark, and and COVID willing, I suppose. I uh, Mark, he's in charge of, of COVID, COVID too. <laughs> well, I certainly agree, and I don't think we can attribute willingness to uh, an, you know an inanimate virus anyway. But um, although that that raises the question of whether viruses are animate. But anyway, um, uh, it's going to be March twentieth of next year, so just in a few uh, a few months, uh, 5.30 p.m. local time there in South Carolina, and it was specifically Landrum, uh, South Carolina, if I'm not mistaken. So, That's yeah, right. w- w- uh, we would love for people to come and, and watch. I think there will even be a few other people there uh, moderating or at the very least watching that some people might be familiar with. I think it's going to be great, and I would very much love to have people come out. And I just want to say thanks to Keith for, uh, and, and to Brandon, um, for inviting us and for paying for us to fly out there and for hosting this. Um, it's, it's you know, we, we conditionalists are so used to um, tr- traditionalists either not wanting to have the conversation with us at all um, or outright denying us any sort of conversation because we're heretics or whatever. And for Keith and Brianna to treat us as kindly and as brotherly as they have really means a lot to us. And um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to a lively, but very loving and and brotherly debate. Oh man. I was just near Landrum uh, this year at Traveler's Rest. And I've been all over this part of the country uh, speaking at churches. So I'm, I might have to show up for this guys. Well, come on down. We're glad to have you. Yeah. All right. Well, listen. Oh, somebody asked, will the Rethinking Hell conference be on YouTube? Yeah, so we uh, for people that purchased tickets to come uh, and attend or, or to watch remotely, we do have unlisted YouTube links that we have sent to those people. Um, because people have paid to have early access to those, we're not going to open them up to the larger public anytime soon. Um, we always publish the recordings maybe within a year of the conference. So if people don't want to wait that long, um, they can become a patron, a supporter of Rethinking Hell by going to patreon.com slash rethinking hell. And if they sign up to be a patron there, we'll give them those links to uh, early access to those videos as well. Uh, But I do want to say uh, I'm not just known for Rethinking Hell. And as I've mentioned a couple of times in our conversation here, uh, I also do my own personal live show every other week. It's It's linked in the description too. Perfect. Thanks. And I won't, I don't need to say anything more, but, but just suffice it to say that on that show, if people don't like my hell theology, which I can understand, uh, I don't talk about that on my own personal show. So come check that out. If you don't want to check rethinking hell out, but do check out rethinking hell. It's a great show. All right. Guys. And if anybody's having vision trouble, because they've been watching my blurry picture, you can send <laughs> Braxton the bill to get a new uh, set of glasses and that might clear your vision up. That's there right. you go. That's right. Well, listen, guys, I love you both. Um, you both mean a lot to me. You mean a lot to Trinity. Um, I, I, it's just amazing to me how the internet has brought people together. Like that, that feel like brothers who I've known all my life. And, um, I, and I like it that we can really engage in the history of the Christian faith and be a part of that discussion that's been going on. Um, that's, that's so important. And, and listen, uh, I hope you both the best with your own ministries and channels. Thank you for all the help you've provided me. And listen, if you have further questions for either one of these guys, um, I'll make sure it gets to them. If you want to send it to me on social media, Chris is very active on social media. Um, Keith, 
is not as active in an obvious way, at least. And so uh, if you got something for him, post it in the comments. He can watch the comments for this video and maybe respond to you. So, sure. um, but anyway, listen, it's been great. Um, guys, thanks for coming. And I'll see everyone next time on Trinity Radio.